Welcome to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast, a place where we explore research, amplify autistic voices, and change the way we think about autism in life and in our professional therapy practices. I'm Meg Farrell, formerly Meg Proctor, from learnplaythrive.com, broadcasting to you today from unceded Chalagi territory. Before we get started, a quick note on language. On this podcast, you'll hear me and many of my guests use identity-affirming language. That means we say autistic person rather than person with autism, because this is the preference of most autistic adults. Being autistic is a part of their identity that they don't need to be separated from. Join us in embracing the word autistic to help reduce the stigma. Welcome to episode 86 with Sharon Hammer and Lisa Holm on trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care has become such a buzzword, but there's often so little content behind it. I remember being a newer OT looking to really support my client's felt sense of safety, but I just couldn't conceptualize what it would mean or look like to do that without some sort of training. So I found a continuing education course It was put on by an OT, so I was hoping that would mean it would be really relevant and applicable to my work. And somehow, five or six hours later, I hadn't really learned anything that would impact how I supported my clients in my work. Fast forward to 2023, I came across the work of licensed professional counselors, Sharon Hammer and Lisa Holm. They both teach and train providers as well as supporting their own clients in really creative trauma-informed ways in their practice in Wisconsin, which is called Imagine Your Capacity. Their teaching on trauma-informed care wasn't just practical. It was very intentionally woven into an understanding of neurodiversity and intersectionality in a way that I haven't seen in very many places. So today's podcast episode is a really great place to start if you want to deepen your understanding of trauma-informed practices in the context of neurodiversity-affirming care. And if you want to really dive deep into how to set up your sessions, how to communicate with your clients, how to set up your environment, and even how to write goals to support your client's sense of safety, we also have a brand new seven and a half hour self-paced continuing education course called Trauma-Informed Therapy for Autistic People. It's taught by Sharon and Lisa. The waitlist is now open and pre-registration will open soon. That's when we offer the lowest price we'll ever offer right before the course launches. So check it out and get on the list at learnplaythrive.com slash trauma. Here's the interview with Sharon Hammer and Lisa Holm. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hi, Meg. I'm so glad to sit down with y'all. I, I told you before we started that I've been watching through your new course. So I've been sitting at my computer looking at your faces for seven hours, <laughs> but <laughs> but not with you able to see me and interact. So it's a pleasure to be here in real time with you. We appreciate that so much, Meg. When you said that, we're like, that is a lot. That's a lot of time to be to be looking at us and spending time with us. And we're so happy to be able to be with you and have a dialogue today. That's lovely. Well, I obviously enjoyed it so much that I asked you for, for more time to sit down and talk about this topic because it's so important. And I want to start out by letting listeners get to know you and your story a little bit. Can Can you each tell us a little bit about 
your story of how you came to do the work that you're doing. Yes, and I will. I'll start that, Meg. I can absolutely do that. So I was getting my master's degree. So I was getting my master's degree in counseling. And as we all know, graduate school can be very expensive. And so I was looking for a part-time job while I was in school and I took a job and I do have to, before I tell the story, I do have to say that this job that I took was in ABA. And so I do feel like that is a trigger warning. Sometimes I absolutely want to acknowledge that and say that as I'm getting into this story. And so I took a part-time job providing ABA therapy for a couple of autistic children that I'm, we're from Wisconsin, Lisa and I are from Wisconsin. And at that time, that was the only treatment, intensive in-home treatment that was provided financially by the state. And so while I was in grad school, got this job. And what happened to me while I was in that job is I just kind of fell in love with the kids. I just would, I would go to bed and I would dream about I worked with two, two little boys. They were both about four or five and I would go to bed and I would dream about them in my sleep. And it just like, I don't know what it was, but it just kind of made a connection with me, like deep level. Of course, this wasn't what I was going to grad school for. And so I graduated grad school. My emphasis was in marriage and family work. And so I thought I should actually do that. And so I went and did in-home court mandated marriage and family therapy work for a year because I thought that's what you're supposed to do after you graduate with this. And I miss the autistic people so much that when I probably less than a year, it was probably about 10 months in and I saw an ad in the paper to work with autistic people again. And I jumped at the opportunity and I was like, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm supposed to be. And so that that was a long time ago. That was probably in about 1998, I want to say. And I've been in the field ever, ever since. So that's my background. So I'm still a, I'm still a therapist. I'm an LPC in Wisconsin. We have licensed professional counselors. And so that's what I am. And my specialty area is neurodivergence and, and mental health. Sharon, before we switch over to Lisa's story, can you speak a little bit more to how your practice evolved from starting out in ABA to where you are now? (laughs) Yes. I actually love telling the story. So thanks for asking that. (laughs) You know, when I, when I first got into this field, I didn't know a lot about autism at all. And so I think that when I studied in grad school, we did not have a course on autism at all. I was already, because of my side work, I was seeking it out. And so if we had like projects we could do, I would choose books on autism and talk to, you know, talk to autistic people. And what happened was getting back into the field, you know, at that point, and we are talking over 20 years ago now, I looked at the quote unquote professionals and I am literally making air quotes as I say that. And so we, I learned from the people who were the, again, air quotes, expert in the field. And it took a while. So it was a while. It was probably about 10 years that I was listening to those experts. And I met a dear friend who you will hear about in our training. Her name is Judy Endo. And she's an autistic woman. And she was the one that really, I think, changed the course of my professional life and the course of my personal life too. And just that I started to, she was the first one that I really, really started to listen to because she was my friend. And this sounds horrible when I hear myself saying this, 
And I also think it's really important for everyone to hear this. Like, it's so important to like know growth as possible. And so I worked with local autism societies and places like that with Judy. And we were really starting to prioritize highlighting the autistic voice. And I'd like to say, you know, I got 10 years into my career and then I started to listen to autistic people. And Meg, that was the turning point, I would say, in where the direction I was going in and the direction I am now was that. It was going to conferences that highlighted autistic voices and not the other ones, like making that conscious choice. So like, this is what I need to do. There were some things that were happening, even from the beginning, that never felt okay to me, that never sat right. And so it was it was that. It was that. Just getting more exposure to autistic adults, mostly, that were telling their stories and, and listening to them. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's probably relatable to a lot of our listeners and such a testament yeah. to how inclusion benefits us all, right? If we it don't does. have these relationships, it takes a lot of intentional effort to yeah. work on our perspective taking if we don't have relationships with folks with different identities. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about you, Lisa? What's your story? My story is somewhat similar to Sharon's, actually. Although I entered undergraduate school planning to go into business. And I, you know, spent my first year as a business major. And I needed to find a job for the summer because I needed to make some more money to help with tuition. And I had planned to do some work in a business office. But my mom, who was a special education teacher, she kept sending me this newspaper ad that was, you know, back when you had like had to clip it out of the newspaper. And she kept sending me this ad that there was a family looking for a in-home therapist for their child, for their autistic child. And it was an ABA program. So I'm going to name that right away too. But I kept telling my mom that I'm going to be a business major mom, like stop sending this to me. But she kept sending it to me. And so finally I was just like, okay, I'll just, I'll just go, I'll just go meet this family. And what's true is that I had for a long time said that I wanted to be a teacher, but then I like shifted that. And so she was, I think, still like connected to that idea and maybe seeing that in me. And I was like, all right, why not? I like kids. And and so I went to meet this family. And like Sharon, I just kind of fell in love with this little girl. And so I was like, this seems fun. And it seems more fun than maybe some of that like filing and (laughs) invoices that I was going to be doing. And so I started to work with 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 the family for just a couple of hours a week. And over the course of that summer, like went from working just a couple hours a week to working like 20 hours and really cutting back on that business piece. And so that fall, when I went back to school, I changed my major to rehab psychology and, you know, switched out of the business program and found another provider in our area to work with. And as Sharon named, we both got our kind of entry into the field in ABA. And that was the only source of funding for families. And 
in many places, it still is a prime, the primary source of funding and families are kind of told that that's their only option. But 20 years ago, that really was like, this is what you do. I think that I felt lucky that the second provider I worked with um, used Greenspan and they were really looking to challenge that that ABA is the only model to go with, but still having to work within sort of that funding framework when at our state at the time. But I feel really lucky that I was able to then like learn about sensory pieces and more play-based pieces and, and approaches that follow the child's lead more pretty early on. However, that doesn't mean that those were sort of affirmative approaches in entirety either. But I, as Sharon's, like, I just felt this deep connection to the kids that I was working with. And so I stayed in the field. As I said, I changed my major. I really never switched like the population I was working with that became became my focus. And I really felt like over time, we started to question all of these like myths that like the pathological model was putting in front of us. So the idea that we needed to like teach people to make eye contact, for example, and that this is a really important part of treatment. You know, as Sharon said, like there were certain things that just never felt great to me. And it felt really good when we started to see like the reason why this isn't feeling great is because it's wrong. <laughs> and so let's let's change that and to be able to be part of that shift to change it was really important for me and for my my career. There came a point I focused at, you know, in the in-home programs and then I ended up doing a lot of school consultation and there came a point for me where I was also really just knowing the noticing the mental health needs of of the autistic population and so I went back for my masters in rehab counseling and specifically looked at how do we support mental health in autistic people? And that's kind of what brought me to where I am today. I love, love, love the role of your mom in this story. <laughs> I know. She's <laughs> going to be so excited when she listens to this. That is incredible. As, as a mom, I'm just noting persistence here as the key element. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's great. I, I came across y'all's work. I don't know if I even told you this because I sort of cold reached out to you maybe a year ago. Mm -hmm. I came across a talk on trauma-informed care for autistic people that y'all did. I noted the use of identity first language in the title, which is usually just a signal that somebody has a practice of listening to autistic people, especially if it's non-autistic non presenters using identity first language. And I watched your talk and throughout it, I was like, okay, like these folks have a, a real practice of listening to learning from autistic people and autistic people with intersectional identities. And it was so refreshing. And the the content that y'all have been helping with at Learn, Play, Thrive is on trauma-informed care. So as we sort of dive into that content, I just want to get you to define it. What is trauma-informed care and why is this especially important for autistic clients? 
I think in kind of thinking about trauma-informed care, Meg, what I really think it, think about is just like having coming into any new relationship with the understanding that what happened before matters to that person. And it is what happened before has an effect on the person they are bringing in front of you today. And that to me is being trauma-informed is just that, that every single human being that is walking the planet has this background. And I think your question about why is it so important for autistic individuals, and I would even go further to say like anybody who comes from a group that's considered in a position of having less influence and power in, in a community is that there is an automatic trauma in being part of one of those groups. And so for me, like that intersection of like understanding you are coming to me today as a person with your whole, I, I can almost picture it, right? The whole, everything that ever happened to you behind you and knowing that being part of this specific minority group just adds to that and adds so many layers to it is why this intersection, I think, makes so much sense to Lisa and I and why we spent so much time working here. Because I think when I started learning more about trauma, I think, and Lisa can speak to this too, I think I came to it kind of backwards from a lot of people. I think a lot of people come and enter into the world of trauma and then they realize like, oh, autistic people may have trauma. For me, I already knew a lot about autistic people when about 10 years ago, I started to learn about trauma. And I remember, Lisa and I had so many conversations about this where we were learning new things about trauma and we're like, well, this is autistic people. And it was like just some of the components of the, the sensory sensitivities and the being hyper aware of your surroundings and possibly we talk about this in the training, but ha possibly having neurology that is more focused on possible threats. We're learning this stuff about trauma and we're going, but this is autistic people like this, this matches. And it was just, it was fascinating how those two like intersected. And then in learning more about both, we just really started to like understand why. Yeah, absolutely. And I would add to that, that because of that, we also, part of being trauma-informed when you're specifically talking about autistic people, or we could expand that to like the wider neurodivergent population, yeah. is that their trauma, there's the past trauma, but then there's present and ongoing trauma that is mm -hmm. a result of living in a society that largely favors neuronormative <laughs> yeah. and expectations. Yeah. And so... Part of being trauma-informed then, a big part of it is building that awareness in ourselves. Because if we don't do that, if we don't build our awareness of those factors, of the individual's own cultural factors and the historical factors that, that have impacted them, especially from systems of power, then we really do risk re-traumatizing clients. And we're going to compromise in our ability to provide them a safe space to to obtain their treatment or to obtain the support that they're approaching us for. You know, it's interesting as an OT, I feel like we have almost the inverted experience that mental health providers might have that we're often starting from things like developmental milestones and these discrete observable skills 
And then eventually adding on, how's that person doing? What do they need to feel safe? How can they feel safe in order? I was going to say, how can they feel safe in order to learn? But I want to pivot and say, how can they feel safe in order to feel safe? Like feeling safe just as a a thing with really, really high value and importance in itself. And there aren't a lot of good trauma-informed care trainings that I've been able to find for providers like OTs who are, are, we're not necessarily trained to start there. And and like you said, whether we're looking at it or not, it's happening and it's impacting our clients. Mm-hmm. And maybe to go off of what you said and Lisa said, the whole like, how do I make this person feel safe? The importance of doing it for our autistic clients is they are coming to us already in a world that is not safe. Mm-hmm. Right? So then yes. you already are, you have to make it almost like a little bubble of like safety around them when they are with you because the world is not by ne- definition safe for them. I'm just sort of taking that in that we want our time with our clients to be a little bubble of safety, which is really different from people thinking, oh, I need to, I need to push this person so I can see how they react, so I can problem solve it, or I need to create all of these stressful circumstances. Um, when y'all are saying, let's start with creating a space that creates a felt sense of safety for our client, which mm-hmm. isn't intuitive, right? We are all familiar, I think all of our listeners are familiar by now with the double empathy problem. We know that we can't intuitively imagine the perspective of our autistic clients and what safety means. So I want to ask you a little bit more about your journey of listening to autistic people and having that shape how you view your practice, how you view trauma-informed care. What has the impact of that been for y'all? That's such a big like question, it's hard to, I feel like it's hard to narrow it down a bit, but I think that there was this huge realization for me that so many of the things that we were being taught were false. And that if I continued to approach my work with those kind of pillars, like what was being upheld as the correct way to go and the correct way to provide treatment and the correct way to think about things that I was doing such a disservice to the human beings in front of me. And by shifting that and flipping that, we had to do that through deep listening and really like challenging ourselves to step out of this paradigm that we were being like that the funding source was um, like funding sources, but it's even bigger than that, right? It's the educational paradigm. It's it's the world view that we're living in to, to step out of that and to step out of the pathology model and to just listen to people and trust them that they are the experts on their own experience. That was so freeing as a provider, like, I don't have to be the expert. You're the expert on your experience. And that, I mean, just that shift has made such a difference for me and how I approach my work in terms of trying to help people come in contact with themselves and with like 
and help them like bring forth that expert within them that's in there, that's inside. That's lovely. Do you want to add anything to that, Sharon? Yeah, I'd love to go off of that just a little bit. I think that, you know, for me, listening to autistic adults, obviously, like I already said, they kind of then became the expert in my mind. And I think what really changed and challenged me to look at my own ableism in all of this was having not just like one person, but communities of people. Mm-hmm. And Meg, I just want to say like your podcast and the work you're doing, I think really helps to like build up communities. It feels very different when you just are learning from like one autistic person, but when you have a whole community that like is embracing all of these things, it really, really gives you space to like challenge, to like challenge your own what's going on for yourself. And so I just want to say like, what really changed for me is I, I wanted that. Like I wanted a community of people who were going to be like, Sharon, when you said that, I think that was kind of ableist. Like I wanted that. Like I welcome that. And it did. Honestly, it took me a while to get there. So grateful for the community of people and the safe people I have that I work with that are willing to do that with me and go on that journey with me. Because again, it's about creating safety for all of us. And so I want to be with safe people who are going to be able to say, hey, Sharon, what you just said there. Can we can we say that differently? Can you think about how you said that? Because I appreciate that because I am with people who want to learn and grow. Yeah. So shout out to the people listening to the podcast episode. I mean, each episode gets tens of thousands of downloads and it matters. It matters to all be here in this space together. And I think that's a really nice reminder that listening to autistic folks or listening to the populations we serve and to people with intersectional identities within that is a part of culturally responsive care and that it's a practice. Sharon, you just demonstrated that so well. It's not like do this and this and this and you're done. It's an ongoing practice with mistakes and feedback and change. When y'all made your trauma-informed care course for Learn, Play, Thrive, we have a a whole group of consultants who review everything. A lot of them are autistic. We have folks from different fields. And it was it's a really, really sweet process to witness. People say, oh, what if we add this? Or, oh, actually, here's my experience as an autistic person. That slide didn't resonate. Is there a way to make space for this other experience as well? And watching the, the interactions mm-hmm. between those of you creating the course content and all the consultants giving feedback is always a really, really lovely process of like, yes, thank you. Tell me more. Absolutely, Megan. One of the learning points for us in doing that process we just talked about, which I think speaks to the growth that this community is having, is, you know, this the whole project is focused on the intersection of trauma and autism. And so that's where we were focused and that's where you're we giving a lot of energy. And some of the feedback we got was like, I, I am an autistic person. I don't actually think I've experienced trauma in my life. And Lisa and I are like, wait a minute, like, how can that happen? And, <laughs> and then we integrated that feedback and we changed some things that we put into the training because that is really important and amazing that we had a person who's like, this is not, this has not been my story. This has not been true for me. Amazing. And, and, and I need that feedback and I, I actually want to hear that feedback more. So it was, it was great. And I loved being challenged in that way. Yeah. And you know, when I think about that whole journey of becoming trauma informed of becoming neuroaffirming in your practice, it is a journey. And I think if you're in the beginning of that journey, it can feel really vulnerable because 
as you listen to autistic voices, as you listen to people, you are likely going to encounter some things that you would do differently that you wouldn't do anymore. And being in that vulnerable space is that is to me the start of the journey. And we're at a different place with that now where, you know, Sharon, you just named like, yes, tell us, call, let us know, right? I want to hear it because we're not going to arrive someday and be done learning about this. It's There's not an end point. There's not a checklist that we can say, oh, I did all these things. So now I'm trauma-informed or I'm neuroaffirmed. Like there's principles, there's things we incorporate, but it's a journey that's going to be lifelong. And I feel like for me, when I like came to notice that and accept that, again, it just allowed me to approach this from a much more open place. You know, like there's not this like goal, there's not this thing that I'm trying to achieve. It's, it's a journey and a path that I'm on now. And I'm you know, lucky to have these people that are on this path with me. And we're seeing more and more people getting, you know, coming into that journey and being on that path with us. And that's really exciting. Yeah, it really is. I, I want to pivot back a little bit to trauma-informed practices. Like we're talking about, it is a process and there's some basic pillars that anchor yeah. us to trauma-informed care. Can you talk a little bit about what is at the core of trauma-informed practices and how to make sure those are as meaningful as possible for our neurodivergent clients. Yeah, sure. So I think we've talked some about being, you know, at the core is this emphasis on creating safety. So safety and environment, like when I think about that bubble Sharon was talking about, safety and environment, but also safety in the relationship. And then meeting a client where they're at, considering them as a whole person, including their past, their present, and then being aware of those cultural and historical factors that are impacting them. So I think like that's sort of to me, like how we're going to enter, right? But then some of those other pillars would be collaboration. So, you know, recognizing that as a clinician, whether you're a clinician, an educator, like you are in a position of power and authority. And so really being intentional on how you're going to work on like balancing that and evening things out so that you're really collaborating with the client versus like, oh, I have this kind of agenda or I have this this approach that I really want to use, choice. So making sure that there's a lot of space for that, what we're doing, where are we going, what do you want to do? And I think like when I specifically think about choice and autistic or other neurodivergent clients, at a very young age, they maybe have gotten the message that they need to suppress parts of themselves, suppress ways of being in order to get along and be in this world. And so a lot of choices were taken away from them, even just the choice to be yourself. And so like part of, for us, I think in our work with autistic clients, when we think about that pillar, for example, of choice is how do we work with a client on knowing like authentically you have the opportunity for choice in this space when we are together and recognizing that 
there's probably a lot of time in their life where they don't have choice. So they might not even kind of like we've had clients come into our sessions like they are looking for us to make every decision because that is how it's been for them. And so so I think when I think about like the specific some of the specific things, it's like taking that time to really be intentional about how we are building in that choice. How are we building in consistency and clarity and expectations? These are some of the other pillars. And how are we doing that in a way that matches the person's neurology? Hearing you talk about choice like that is so interesting because I think often in, I'll speak for my own field in OT sessions, we can integrate choice sort of superficially. Do you want red balloons or green balloons? And when you talk about choice, you're talking about creating an opportunity for the client to safely find their perhaps very, very quiet internal voice. Yes. And to feel safe to find that voice, to listen to it, and to act from that space in a way that they might not have been given permission to in their lives at all. That's really, really different than the superficial add-on of choice. I appreciate that. What, what would you add, Sharon? I think the only other pillar that really comes into play when we're talking about autistic clients specifically for us is just the the sensory pieces, Meg. I just need to say more about that. And I think we us knowing what we know about trauma too is we know that any pieces that we're adding for our autistic clients are just going to be beneficial for like all the clients we serve. So I know we have a lot of different kinds of therapists on here and I just think that that's really important to name is like Anything you're doing to support like sensory, either it's choice or either like limiting sensory insults, we work really hard to do that. And it is coming back to that, how do I make this safe? And just realizing how much that the sensory components can play into that can be really eye-opening, I think. And again, make across professions. Like, I don't just want your OT to be focused on those possible sensory insults and possible sensory differences. I want the speech therapist to know that. I want that teacher to know that. I want the mental health professional to know that. I want that to be across the board. And so that's another one that specifically trauma-informed for autistic clients is really important. I think that's a really interesting point because things do get so siloed. And, you know, I'm here as an OT asking y'all to teach us all different fields, but I would say mainly it's OTs and SLPs that learn, play, thrive, increasingly social workers, school psychologists, asking y'all to help us understand how to best care for our clients' mental health, their internal experiences, their sense of safety, right? Because we can't just quote unquote, do OT, do speech therapy outside of that. And personally, I have a maybe a different take on sensory processing than some people in my field. I can't find a reason that sensory processing would exist more in the domain of OTs than anyone else. It's not an, an occupation in itself. It's a it's a, a client factor, an environmental factor that we consider in engaging in occupation. But it's something that a speech language pathologist, a mental health provider that anybody would need to consider and often it is OTs who have a lot of training and can share that knowledge. But I love that you're you're taking it out of this, oh, this is specialized and only OTs can do it. It's like, no, this is important and we all need to do it. 
especially speaking as a mental health therapist, like I feel like all therapists should know about this. Like all therapists should know about sensory processing. They should know about the eight senses. They should know about interoception. And I think if you are a trauma therapist, you need to know about this. And I do think all of these things have been in the field of trauma for a long time. I don't think us as therapists have always done historically a great job integrating that information into practice. Y'all do a great job of it and you teach on it in your trauma-informed care course and you do it in in a really lovely way. And I, I just sat and kind of smiled. I was like, I'm an OT who has mental health practitioners teaching the one course that really focuses on sensory processing and you do it so well. It's It's funny that it landed that way, but I'm really... <laughs> I'm really pleased with it. And I think there's a lot of value in that skill sharing, information sharing, collaborating, so we can all create environments that really do feel safe for our clients. Can you give us some concrete examples of what it would look like to work with a client in a trauma-informed way? Absolutely. Yeah. We can make it. We Go can. ahead, please. Um, <laughs> I was just kind of thinking along the sensory realm. So maybe I can start with some examples there. So in our space, we have probably four different treatment rooms. And so something that I might do first session with a client, one is I, ahead of time, whenever possible, I'm going to give them information about our environment and what we're going to do. So the first time that they're here, you know, there's a waiting room. Here's what it's like. You can feel free to stand, sit, walk, use fidgets. So letting them know, like in this space, here's how, you know, you can be, (laughs) you can, and I'm not going to direct how you can be, but, you know, feel free to be in any of like the way that you want to be. And then we'll give choice of treatment rooms. That's another example. So whenever we can walking a client through the space and letting them choose what room is the most comfortable for them. And we have had clients say like that, room, you know, this room, the vent in that room is way louder than the vent in this room. So if we could be in the other room, I'm going to be able to be more, more present for sessions and less focused on that vent that's uh, making a sound that's really bothering me. And then thinking about like, what are the other things in, in your environment sensory wise that we need to add, that we need to take away and being flexible with it. I think that's what we've learned is really important too with in terms of the environment is what works for one person, what's trauma-informed for one person isn't necessarily what's trauma-informed for the next person. And so having that flexibility of where you want to sit, how you want to sit, maybe you don't want to sit, maybe we're standing, the furniture arrangement even like not having something close to the door. We have clients with, you know, have had experienced like locked rooms. And so having the door closed, like can the door be closed or does it need to be open? So all of like, those are just some examples of that thing around space, I guess, and creating that safety right off, right away, right from the beginning, we try to do that. I think the other thing that we do a lot Meg, is just to make sure that we have our expectations laid out really clearly before we even start. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I, I feel like for autistic clients is especially important. Some of whom who have had possibly traumatic experience in prior treatment, prior therapy. And so really laying out like, this is what when you are with me, this is what it is going to look like. And here's where you're going to have choice. And this is where 
you're not going to have choice. This is like a hard end or a hard start. So just laying out those expectations before we even begin, I think is, is really important because then they kind of, they know, we all know what to expect more when we're together. And also giving space there too. Like if some of what I'm saying doesn't work for you, let's talk about how to do it. I, I won't, we, all of us at, at our place we work won't forget, like Lisa did have a you know client who needed the door open and that changed the way all of us interacted in the space during that time. And that was okay. That is what her client needed to feel safe. And so, you know, I think that's the point of like, it becomes bigger than just the interaction of the two of you per se during that time. It became bigger for like the whole system and the whole system, like supporting the client in that, in that space and that interaction. Thank you so much for sharing. And yeah, and I think like like that even deeper goes into, I think so much part of all of our work is not just the direct work you're doing with your client or your student, but it is the work of, you know, we call it psychoeducation in our field where we're educating the people surrounding the person about their needs and about how to best support them. And I think so much of our work goes into that to make, it's not about like necessarily again, I'm air quoting, changing the person that's coming to us. It The majority of the work may be around changing the environment or changing the people that surround that person. Yeah. I think some of these shifts are things that would be so easy for us to miss too. Like Lisa, you mentioned the loud air vent. If we weren't listening and making space to, mm-hmm. to learn about that experience, we might never notice it. Right. And Sharon, you mentioned the open door. I'll, I'll tell you a personal anecdote. After I finished reviewing your course, I have a a four-year-old and my four-year-old was having a four-year-old meltdown. And I I just took her out of the space we were in and calmly like went to her room with her to to sort of co-regulate in a more (laughs) controlled environment. And she said, it's okay that you bring me here, but I wish you would just leave the door open. I'll feel better if you open the door. And I had your voices in my head and I opened her door and she said, I'm going to calm down now. And I, I don't mm-hmm. know why I hadn't heard that from her before. I hadn't listened before. I hadn't thought of it before, but it was something about learning this from y'all allowed me to sort of see her experience of being in here with the door closed doesn't doesn't feel safe. So it, it's interesting how as we learn to be attuned to these things, we can really start to see the possibilities and the impact for our clients, things we might never otherwise think of. So thank you from me and my four-year-old who was in fact hungry. (laughs) So I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your new course at the time this episode comes out. It should be open for pre-enrollment at a lower price than it will be once it fully launches. The course is called Trauma-Informed Therapy for Autistic People Behind Closed Doors. We've been calling it by its acronym TTAP. So, okay. <laughs> no news to y'all, right? Tell us about TAP. Yeah, I like it. Give us a scoop. <laughs> the course that we that we recorded, we really got into just trauma-informed basics. We kind of started there. And then we got into some specific traumas that are very specific to autistic people. And so there are some. And that that is really important to know too. Like when we have these people coming to us, what could be the specific traumas that are more likely to occur in the autistic population. And so we got into that. And then we absolutely got into environment and practices of what we can do to... So part of it, as we said before, Meg, is like knowing 
the trauma, the background, everything people are bringing to you. And then the part Lisa talked about is not creating new. And so we got into the environment and practices and how are we going to make these spaces as safe and as hopefully less traumatizing to our autistic clients that are coming in. And the course is designed for any professional who is um, working with autistic clients. So while Sharon and I are both mental health professionals, it applies to people in, you know, all sorts of education, you know, educators, OTs, speech therapists, in all different professions. It will be useful for you, we hope so. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think it's a course that has really concrete takeaways for for anyone working with autistic folks. And I'm so grateful that y'all are sharing this with the Learn Play Thrive community and and everybody out there who's wanting to learn and serve their autistic clients in a more trauma-informed way. Tell us what y'all are working on, where we can find you online. Sure. Well, Sharon and I, we are working on finalizing a support model that we've been working on for a number of years that helps individuals to identify their, like, share, I guess, their own, their traits, and then, like, look at supports that we can build in with them, or as Sharon mentioned, what psychoeducation needs to happen for for providers or natural supports supporting that person. So we're really excited about that model. And that's probably our next big project that we're working to finish up. And then you can find us on Facebook, Imagine Your Capacity Counseling and Consulting. And you can find us on Instagram at Imagine Your Capacity Counseling and Consulting, LLC. Thank you all both so much. I'm so excited about your course. I loved this conversation today and I'm so grateful to both of you. So thank you. Thanks for having us, Meg. We're really excited to be here and to be partnering with, with you all. Thank you so much, Meg. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a minute to rate us on your podcast app and share the episode on your social media. This helps us reach more people and create even more change. And if you're looking for more, visit learnplaythrive.com for a neurodiversity quiz, free masterclasses, and in-depth continuing education courses. Join us back here next time where we will keep diving deep into autism. 